Good morning, and welcome back to our walk through the book of Daniel. Um, If you're following along in your pew Bibles, uh, it's on page 742. Um, If you're not in a pew Bible, uh, the Bible has this neat little thing in the front of it called the table of contents that's really helpful. Um, They can tell you what page Daniel starts. And so um, today we come to Daniel chapter 5. And what we see here is both new and in many ways a pattern from what we've seen so many times in this book already. Uh, So far, we've seen Daniel and his friends resist a pagan worldview in chapter 1, and God honor them in that. We saw Daniel interpret a dream in chapter 2, proclaiming that the kingdom of Christ, a little rock, would one day bring all other kingdoms to an end. We saw Daniel's friends resist again in chapter 3. They resisted idolatry and resisted disobeying the first and second commandments. They were thrown in a fire, but God rescued them and glorified himself in the process. In chapter 4, last week, Daniel was back to interpreting dreams. We saw King Nebuchadnezzar's pride humbled. We saw him converted. Today, we'll see Daniel once again brought in to interpret something. We'll see more pride, arrogance, and idolatry. But we'll also see swift judgment. But before we jump in, uh, I need to give us a brief history lesson. Chapters 1 through 4 of Daniel have all been about King Nebuchadnezzar's reign in Babylon. Well, All of a sudden, if you picked up on this as Ben was reading it, in chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar's gone. The first words in chapter chapter 5 are, King Belshazzar. Who's he? Well, very briefly, he's the son of a man named Nabonidus, who ruled in Babylon from 556 to 539 B.C. Uh, King King Nebuchadnezzar from chapter 4 died in 562 B.C. uh, after a reign of 43 years. So notice that Daniel, the author of this book, doesn't spend any time telling us all of this Jewish or Babylonian history here. Why? Because he's writing for a different purpose. He wants us to understand something a little different. He wants us to understand who God is. But that being said, it's important for us to know a couple of small historical details that will help us make better sense of chapter 5. So, Nabonidus, who took on the the title of Nebuchadnezzar III, he worshipped this moon god that was named Sin, uh, capital S-I-N, the moon god Sin. This quickly became an issue, um, not only for the the clergy of Babylon, but for the people. Because their primary god, the god of the Babylonians, was not the moon god Sin, but this other god named Marduk. Uh, The history books tell us, and I don't have a clue how they pulled this one off, but because of this issue, uh, the clergy and the people were actually able to relocate Nabonidus, Nebuchadnezzar III, they were able to relocate him 500 miles away to this town called Tima, where there was another Babylonian palace. 
So picture moving someone from here to a little bit past San Diego, if that gives you a, a reference, 500 miles away. In his place, Nabonidus leaves his son, Belshazzar, who was running Babylon as, as kind of a second in command. Some of these minor details actually come out in our text. So it's important for us to understand a little bit of what's going on here. So that's a little snippet of who Belshazzar is. So let's jump into our text. Uh, point one of the sermon today is pride, idolatry, and mocking God. Uh, so let's look at verses one through four. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple and the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Uh, at this point, 23 years have passed since the end of chapter 4. Uh, it's been almost 70 years since Daniel and his friends were deported to Babylon in chapter 1. And we've got a new king in the text. So, what's your first impression of this king? I don't know about you, but because of the first four chapters of Daniel and what we've seen God do, I'm watching this guy's actions here in Daniel 5 and thinking, this guy isn't wise. First of all, he does something that most kings just don't do. He gathers a, a thousand or more of his leaders and many others, and it says he drank wine in front of them. As will become clear soon, that this wasn't just a party. That would be way too tame for what's going on here. This sounds a whole lot like the party that Herod threw in Mark chapter 6, with women and drink and debauchery. It's a gathering of seductive excess. And here we have Belshazzar, who's leading them in setting an example of drunkenness and sensuality. Even more, the history books tell us that at this feast, uh, the moment that this is happening, the moment it's going on, the enemy is already making their way through a dry riverbed into the middle of the city, simultaneously to this feast or party. Belshazzar is oblivious to it, even though he should have known what was going on. Nonetheless, he arrogantly parties making himself the center of attention. Where have we seen that before in the text? And if you think it, it couldn't get worse, it does. Look at verses 2 and 3. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then... They brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. Remember in chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar captured Yahweh's people, yes, 
But it also tells us that he captured the vessels of the house of God. Belshazzar, here in chapter 5, says, Bring them out! I'm going to defile them! Now, a little bit of Bible history. God is holy. He's completely undefiled. He's righteous, set apart. In Exodus chapter 19, when God is about to give his people the law on the mountain, look at his instructions. Exodus 19, verses 10 through 15. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. Do you see that the amount of reverence they had for God's holiness here in Exodus 19? How about the Ark of the Covenant? That's one of God's things, right? No one was to touch the Ark because it represented God's presence and his holiness. Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 5-7, through 7, look at this. It says, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So far, so good. Verse 6, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Uzzah touches the ark. God strikes him dead. You might assume that that's kind of harsh of God, right? I mean, he was just trying to do a good thing. The ark was falling, and he put out his hand. Kind of harsh, right? But it's not. God is holy. We are not. Uzzah wrongly assumed that his hands were less dirty than the ground the ark would have fallen on. God is holy. And to mess with his stuff is to mess with him. So think of it this way. If you showed up to work and all of your stuff was packed and put outside your door, you'd know that it wasn't just your stuff that was out of a job. You are. But one commentator says it this way. Contempt for God's stuff is the same as contempt for God himself. So what does Belshazzar do in Daniel chapter 5? He takes God's stuff and pours himself a drink. 
These were vessels created for worship of the one true creator. Do you see the foolishness and the arrogance of this king? Then look again at verse 4. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. This is idolatry at its finest. Instead of using these vessels to honor and worship God, they're using them to worship gods that are not even gods. Gods that are not living or real. God's people and God's vessels represented the presence and the power of God. Belshazzar here thinks that he's proclaiming victory over Yahweh. He believes that Yahweh no longer has any power or presence in his kingdom. David Helm puts it this way. He says, The king was declaring to everyone with his hand, he had a firm grip on God. He owned Yahweh. Now, consider this. You, today, this morning, might not be in a setting like Daniel 5. But, I'll just ask this question. Is there anything in your life or your world that God has declared holy that you treat with disdain? I'll ask that again. Is there anything in your life or in your world that God has declared holy that you treat with disdain? Maybe the institution of marriage. The church which Christ obtained with his own blood. How you treat your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. God declares our bodies holy. How about other Christians in general? They're vessels who are made for the worship of the one true creator. Contempt for God's things is contempt for God himself. Belshazzar is foolish and wicked. He continues to believe that he can mock God. And more importantly, that God doesn't see him. Look at what Isaiah prophesied concerning Babylon. Over a hundred years before Babylon's downfall, Isaiah says this, Isaiah 47, verses 10 and 11. He says, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone, and ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. He's describing Daniel 5 there, a hundred years before it happened. Belshazzar believes that no one sees him in his wickedness. But, point two, God is not blind. God is not blind. Look at verses 5 through 9. It says, 
Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be in the, the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. Do you see that? God is not blind. He sees our sin when we mock his glory. As soon as they defile God's vessels and praise these lowercase g gods, Yahweh, the one true God, responds. He sends a hand to write on the wall. In the National Gallery in, in London hangs a Rembrandt painting of this moment. And it's called Belshazzar's Feast. Uh, he captures the moment pretty well, I think. There's true fear in the eyes of the guests. And look back to our text. Look at the description of the king here. It says, his color changed. <laughs> he goes white as a ghost. But the text also tells us that his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Many commentators point out that this is an idiom for he lost control of his bowels. His bladder loosened. So he's white as a ghost and he's standing in a puddle. He's terrified, rightly. Understand this. One day, every single one of us will stand before God. and His judgment will be terrible. In that moment... There will only be two types of people. Those who are guilty of sin and condemned, and those who are guilty of sin and not condemned because of the blood of Christ. If Belshazzar's fear here is any indication, or just a, a small taste of what judgment will be like, I promise you, you don't want to experience it without being clothed in Christ's righteousness. Quick side note here. If we didn't know the rest of the story, we might look at this moment and say, well, Belshazzar, he's in mental anguish. There's even physical manifestations going on. We might be tempted to say he's being converted under the weight of God's judgment here. But this certainly isn't the case. Jonathan Edwards, during what would be become known as the Great Awakening, he, he was genuinely seeing a number of people converted. He was seeing people repent and believe in Jesus. But he was also struggling with what he saw and understood to be false conversions. And he wrote a whole book on this called Religious Affections. He also wrote a book on revival where he says this. He says, a work of God's grace is not to be judged by any effects on the bodies of men, 
such as tears, trembling, groans, loud outcries, agonies of body, or the failing of bodily strength. The influence um, persons are under is not to be judged of one way or the other by such effects on the body. And the reason is because the scripture nowhere gives us any such rule. We cannot conclude that persons are under the influence of the true spirit because we see such effects upon their bodies, because this is not given as a mark of the true spirit. Belshazzar wasn't converted, but he was definitely scared out of his mind. Those are two different things. So where does he turn in this moment? Well, again, to the clown car, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, and the wise men of Babylon. In his own depravity and bankruptcy, he turns to the wisdom of the world. And what happens? They strike out. They can't even read it, much less interpret it. I'm immediately reminded of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. God thwarts the wisdom of this world. Isn't this just like God? He exposes Belshazzar's helplessness by even showing his favorite props to be useless. Belshazzar calls for the wisdom of this world. They're useless. So, how about you? Where do you turn in moments like this? Even if it's religion... It's useless if it's not a true turning to God. A prop is powerless in the face of a holy God. That's what we're meant to see here. Even a position of status can't protect you when God shows up in judgment. Thankfully, there was a little bit of wisdom left in the palace here. Look with me at verses 10 through 12. Chaldeans, the astrologers, the wise men, they don't know anything. And then verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. 
And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. First of all, this queen was obviously wise enough not to have been at this party. She's somewhere else and has to come into the banqueting hall. So we're already alerted to the fact that she's different from Belshazzar. Most likely, this queen is either the queen mother, the wife of Nabonidus, who's away from the palace, or she's the widow of Nebuchadnezzar. We really don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But she either remembers her experience or her history. She says, don't fret. I know a guy. Then she repeats what Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged in chapter 4. She says, there's this guy in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. While it's unclear whether she misunderstands monotheism, she understands at least that Daniel's God is holy. That's something that Belshazzar clearly didn't. She also knew that Daniel was wise. So she reminds Belshazzar of the history. One more side note. Multiple times we've seen the text say, Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Uh, we should know that uh, often the word father was used in place of ancestor. So think, uh, we use the term Father Abraham, or the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, this kind of language was used all over Scripture to describe ancestors instead of direct fathers. So, uh, the queen reminds Belshazzar uh, of the history here. And then, she even calls Daniel... Daniel, by his real name, acknowledging his true identity, given by God and not by kings. She seems to get it, right? So, she gives the history lesson, and then she says, call him up, now! Well, what happens? Point three, a godly prophet, verses 13 through 25. Daniel shows up. And remember, he's almost 80 years old at this point in the book. It seems that he's become quite obscure, actually. The king doesn't even appear to know about him. But here's what I want us to see. God still uses obscure, faithful people as instruments in his hands. I'm going to say that again. God still uses obscure, faithful people as instruments in his hands. That gives me so much hope and encouragement this morning. I picture Daniel kind of hobbling into the palace at this point, maybe with a cane in hand. And what does Belshazzar do? 
the same thing he always does. He acts in his power and in his pride. Look at how he addresses Daniel here. Verse 13. So you are, are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. <laughs> Immediately, the king tries to do what he thought he was doing with God's vessels before. He wants Daniel to know who's boss and who's a captive exile. He wants him to know that he owns him. Then he offers Daniel a bribe. Verse 16. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. He can't offer for him to be the second in the kingdom because he's the second in the kingdom, remember? His dad, Nabonidus, is number one. He's often Tima. Belshazzar is number two in the kingdom. And so he's offering slot number three along with some status and bling. He thinks that he can buy his way out of judgment. But Daniel is pretty blunt. Essentially, he says, I don't want your status or your stuff. It's meaningless. But I'll tell you the truth. Then he does. But before simply telling him what's on the wall, he, like the queen, needs to give him a little history lesson or more of a sermon. Look at verses 18 through 21. I'm not going to read them again, but essentially, Daniel preaches the sermon from last week. He tells Belshazzar what happened to Nebuchadnezzar and how his pride came before a fall. He tells him how this led to Nebuchadnezzar acknowledging the truth of who God is. Then he says something piercing in verse, verse 22. He says, And you, his son, or successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. Do you see that? He says, Belshazzar, you knew all of this, yet you followed the same path of pride and idolatry. This is Romans 1, 21, before Paul even wrote it. Romans 1, 21 through 23, Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Pay close attention to this. Having the right information doesn't necessarily lead to right action. I've heard it said that some people learn from their own mistakes, but the wise person learns from the mistakes of others. Belshazzar didn't learn from the mistakes of Nebuchadnezzar at all, did he? He had all the information that he needed. You knew these things, Daniel says, but it produced no transformation. He wasn't teachable. 
One 19th century philosopher proclaimed that the only thing we learn from history is that we have learned nothing from history. I fear that so often, even in the church, this is the case. People know so much about the Bible, but they're unchanged. Belshazzar knew, but it didn't matter at all. We have example after example after example in both the Old and the New Testaments at our disposal of mistakes and sins that people made and of one who never sinned. Yet, this information goes ignored. It doesn't change some people's actions, their pride, their idolatry. Church, don't let this be so. You can know all of this, but unless there's true repentance and belief, it doesn't matter. So humble your heart, turn from sin, and trust in Christ. Look what he says next in verse 23. Daniel says, But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. You and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Daniel isn't vague, is he? <laughs> he straightforwardly and clearly rebukes this king in the midst of his sin. Notice how often he uses the word you or your in this whole section. It's kind of like a machine gun almost. He's direct. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. Once again, I fear that this same rebuke could be given to us, even within the evangelical church. So many just put Jesus on the shelf with their other gods. Yeah, Jesus gets our Sunday mornings, but the other six and a half days, we worship the gods of sports, money, family, pleasure, or comfort, which do not see or hear or know. God will get your attention. Daniel rightly tells the king and us this morning that these lower, lowercase g gods don't see, hear, or know. This fact will become clear momentarily when these gods can't protect Belshazzar from the incoming invaders. So hear this. These gods, whatever they might be for you, cannot protect you from the just wrath of God and his coming judgment. Which brings us to our final point. Point four. Swift judgment, verses 24 through 30. Then from his presence, the hand was sent, 
And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter, Daniel said. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Perez, which is the plural of Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him, that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. As the saying goes, the writing was on the wall. The game was over for Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar's story ended, if you remember, in chapter 4, with his repentance. But here, there's no such thing. And we're meant to see the contrast between those two. Belshazzar remained in his sin, even to the very end, thinking that he could buy his way out of judgment. But God had numbered his days weighed him, found him wanting, divided the kingdom between the Medes and the Persians. If you think that you can hold God in your hand, if you think that you own Yahweh, you're at the doorstep of judgment. It says, that very night, the king was killed. God's word was fulfilled. Darius, who is believed to be the same as Cyrus. He had already dammed up the river that flowed under the city wall at this point. His men had already waded through the muddy riverbed into the heart of the city and would then proceed to unknowingly be instruments of executing God's justice on Belshazzar. One commentator says this. He says, to those who knew their scriptures, this was no surprise. God's prophets had already laid out Babylon's destiny. Babylon was a passing fad. Here today, gone tomorrow. If we've paid attention even within the book of Daniel so far, we know this, right? Nebuchadnezzar's dream from chapter 2 was clear. Babylon would give way to clay feet. All other kingdoms would be pulverized by the kingdom of God. That's the truth. It's still the truth today. So, what are we meant to learn from this chapter? How does it apply to us today? Well, first, we're reminded that as God's people... We're not to be in awe of earthly power, prestige, and wealth. We're not to be in awe of any of those things. Whether it's Belshazzar or even Nebuchadnezzar before him, the truth is still the same. The Most High, meaning God, rules the kingdom of men. God has weighed the wisdom, power, and pomp of the world and found it wanting. 
give that some thought this morning. Nebuchadnezzar, from chapter 4, he was actually powerful. He got four whole chapters in Daniel, and yet God humbled him. Belshazzar was just a wannabe, and God brought him down. So I'd ask this question, who or what do we idolize in our current culture? People of real power? Celebrities? Politicians? Athletes? Daniel wants us to see that this world's power is fleeting. And we're not to be in awe of it. In Daniel 5, one of the most powerful men in the world, he's humbled, this is meant to be humorous, he's humbled by a faithful, mature old man who stands for the word of God. So I ask, will you be useful like that? Will you be useful to God to the very end? Second, we're meant to see the powerlessness of the lowercase g, gods. Is there anything in your life that you worship that needs to be repented of to give God his proper place? Our text is clear. If we place these gods above or even alongside the one true God, we're just as foolish as Belshazzar. Judgment will come. Belshazzar thought that he was indestructible, but he wasn't. And you're not either, and I'm not either. God holds your breath in his hand. It's an amazing statement in our text. He's the one who's worthy of all praise and honor and glory. Third and finally, we should be humbled by God's mercy and his grace. We should be humbled by God's mercy and grace. I pointed this out earlier, but do you see the contrast in this chapter between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar? That's intentional. Nebuchadnezzar repented. He was converted. It's crazy to think that so someone came up after the service last week and said this. They said, it's crazy to think that one day we'll hug Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. But Belshazzar was different. He didn't repent. He didn't turn. He was humbled, but only to the point of death. God will humble everyone eventually. One day, Every knee will bow, either in redemption or in judgment. And that's what I want us to see here. It's not that Nebuchadnezzar was just a better person than Belshazzar. Not at all. The only reason that Nebuchadnezzar repented was because of God's grace and mercy to him. Every single one of us would be Belshazzar if it weren't for God's mercy and grace to us. We have all dishonored and defiled God and his things, just like Belshazzar at this party. 
Maybe in different ways, but it's the same thing. And God has given us his word. Not on a wall, but in a book. He's revealed himself to us as the creator and sustainer of the universe. He's made it clear that each of us has sinned and rebelled against him. We've committed cosmic treason. But he's made a way for us to be right with him once again. He sent his son Jesus, who lived perfectly in every way that we don't. He never sinned. Then Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty that each of us owe. He absorbed the full amount of God's wrath on the cross for those who repent and believe in him. He drank the cup of God's wrath for his people. By God's mercy and grace, we can be saved. Now understand that this story in Daniel is God's grace to us this morning. Babylon is the precursor of the final judgment to come. In the book of Revelation, at the end of our book, the final judgment of God's people, or a, a final judgment of God, is represented as what? The fall of Babylon. In Daniel 5, we get a precursor of that. Evil is judged. God is sovereign. The same will be true in the last days. Evil will not win. God will not be mocked or dishonored. God reveals these truths to us today so that we might turn from sin and trust in Christ. That's grace and mercy. Will this just be more information for us today? Or will our actions be changed through, the, through watching the mistakes of others? Let's pray.